and welcome to Smarter, Richer, Braver, the podcast that's specially curated for you, a generation of young people who want to step up, stand out, and live life on their own terms. A generation who aim to do better, not just for themselves, but for humanity as a whole. A generation who aim to be smarter, richer, and braver, because that's exactly what the world today needs. I'm your host, Marilyn Pinto, author and founder at KFI Global, and I'd like to warmly welcome all you Gen Zers. A special shout out to all our KFI Global students listening in. Please know that this podcast was made with you in mind, and I promise it's going to be worth your attention. This podcast is strictly for those 25 years and younger. If you are older than that, please listen at your own risk. Common side effects include regret and anger for not having heard this earlier in your life. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the influence of technology and social media on your life and the profound impact this has on your self-worth, mental health, focus, and so much more. Now I know you're probably fed up of hearing about this from your parents and teachers. I can almost see you rolling your eyes and preparing to skip this. Don't. Trust me like you always have and listen to this till the end. This podcast has always been about what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And today's episode is particularly pertinent given the outsized impact social media has on your life. Our guest today is Max Stossel. He's the founder and CEO of Social Awakening, a group that promotes the healthy use of social media so that youngsters like you can survive and thrive in a digital world. This episode is not about telling you what to do. It's about telling you the truth. It's hearing about the dangers of technology, not from your parent or teacher, but from a tech insider, someone who understands it intricately. Max has an extensive background in running social media for multinational brands and later worked for a social media company where he designed some of the notification structures used to distract people that he now raises awareness about. Today's episode is going to open your eyes and change your perspective on social media so that you can lead a life that's smarter, richer, and a whole lot braver. Max, welcome to the podcast and thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you for having me. Max, why do you do what you do at The Social Awakening? I would say a couple of reasons. One is, like you said, kids are tired of hearing parents and teachers wag their fingers and that doesn't work and isn't helpful. And I'm able to come in and say, hey, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I don't want to tell you what to do. What I do want to do is I want to show you how some of this technology that you're using is designed and some of the ways that it's not designed for you, but it's designed to use you to make other people money, which is a helpful conversation starter to just help us have more intentional relationships with technology. And ultimately, the why I do that is because I think life can be absolutely unfathomably beautiful. And it's very easy to get distracted from ourselves and just miss it and not be living our own self-led determined lives, but instead to just kind of fall into the traps of the easiest thing to do or what everybody else is doing. And it's never been harder to kind of like listen to the higher voice within us when there are constantly a million things screaming for our attention. What do you think are some of the common myths or misconceptions that youngsters have around social media addiction? Can you disabuse our listeners of these? Well, one thing that I think it's a very helpful distinction is between using the stuff and actually like liking it or believing that it's enhancing our lives or giving us some like meaningful value. 
there's one powerful moment that happens in just about every school I go to where I ask people in the audience, I say, hey, raise your hand if you have Snapchat and most hands in the room go up. Keep your hands high if you like Snapchat streaks. And then just about every hand in the room goes down. And it's a manipulation tool to get people to use the app every day. But I think one misconception is that just because we use this stuff, we like it. And I think it's a really helpful question to differentiate. So separating out not just do we like this stuff, but how does this make us feel both during and after use? How is this impacting our lives, our relationships, the things that matter to us? Those are better questions than just do I like it or do I use it? Because technology can be really manipulative and we will do stuff like snap streaks that we don't necessarily like. In your talks, you mentioned deleting the Snapchat app and moving to text or WhatsApp. Why? For me, the reason that I give that suggestion and also you have to very much emphasize when you're talking to young people about this, you're not saying don't talk to your friends. But I like the idea of moving the main place that we're having our text conversations from Snapchat to regular messaging apps. The reason being just that like regular messaging apps like text or even WhatsApp aren't trying to manipulate you to steal your time to serve you ads. The goal of friendships is not to send more messages, but ultimately that's how they're measuring their success. So their goals are not the same as our goals. And so I think Snapchat is, for a lot of reasons, it's a pretty manipulative environment. And I think just there'll be less stress and drama in our lives if we don't use that as the main place that we're sending text messages. You said there are a lot of reasons. Can you just elaborate on a few more? Sure. So SnapMap is another one. So on SnapMap, you can see where all of your friends are physically located. Sometimes we want to hang out with some people and not other people. But now there's this added element of seeing where everybody is all the time. It just creates this extra stress and drama. Snapchat has these best friend scores and like little emojis that show up. For example, if two people are messaging with the like have the same best friend on Snapchat, which means the person they've sent the most messages to, then you get like this little grimace face emoji next to their names, which pretty much means, oh, you're both talking to the same person the most. And it doesn't actually mean that, but it creates all this drama and makes so much seem like it's important or meaningful to our friendships when that's not what's happening at all. But in the end, it, it's ultimately not serving us or not doing anything really but getting us to make a whole bunch of other people at Snapchat some money. Just being highly manipulated. Yeah. And it's using our friendships to manipulate us and using our drivers to manipulate us. Makes sense. Why do you think most youngsters believe that we grown-ups are just being paranoid about the dangers of social media? Are we? I get it. I mean, also, old people are always paranoid about what the young people are doing. That's been the case throughout history. And it's also so much their norm. Like, this is what everyone's doing. This is what life is. There is a lot of misinformation and parents that are afraid of things that aren't happening. And teenagers are living in. They know that they're fine and they don't know anything else. To me, at the place where I see that, you know, we are seeing the numbers of depression, anxiety, teen suicide, all of those things skyrocketing. And that does seem to correlate right around when social media got very popular. I think there are a lot of different elements of that. The self-comparison element of constantly seeing what's going on in everybody else's lives and the body image issues and never feeling enough. I think it really preys on that. But also back in the old days, you know, with the parents, we used to see, like, let's say people were feeling very bored or lonely or whatever that might be. You had to figure out what to do. Like you had to, that got painful enough that we would have to figure out a solution, whether that's going over to a friend's house or coming up with a game or like whatever that might be. We had to solve that. In today's world, like there's just enough of a number 
of, oh, no, look, I'm on social media. I'm connected with my friends. This is fine. Or like, I can just sort of zone out and scroll. This is good enough. Like it's, it fills enough of the need to us for us to not act, but not enough of the need for us to actually feel fulfilled or connected to each other. So there's this weird middle ground. And when I was talking to some teenagers about this, one of them pushed back. They were like, hey, look, would you rather have these synthetic digital relationships or no relationships at all? And I said, I would much rather have synthetic, or, synthetic digital relationships than no relationships at all. I think that's a false choice that we think exactly. that we're in because it's so easy to just fall into this pattern. And so I think that it really is a big piece. It's never been easier to run away from ourselves. It's never been easier to just sort of numb out and pick up the almost connection device and then not just be left afterwards feeling unfulfilled and often doing the things that are meaningful or feeling, you know, make us feel connected, take more effort and might not work all the time, might feel not good three times, but it takes the doing and the trying to find that meaning. And it's never been easier to run away from ourselves and run away from the hard thing. You have a presentation you do in schools titled, We've Been Sneaking Into Your Brains. Can you tell these youngsters more about that? Who's sneaking into their brains and why? Sure. So I open up the talk saying, have you ever looked down at your phone or computer and then immediately gotten distracted and forgotten why or what you were doing? And that was my job. I was designing notifications on people's phones to take them out of their world and bring them into mine because I was working for a social media app and social media companies make their money on advertising. And basically what that means is that the more of your time we can take, the more money that we make. And so much thought goes into every detail of how many notifications can we send every day before you turn off the notifications? There's so much thought that goes into every detail of these screens that just makes it very, very difficult to have an intentional relationship with them. And so, yeah, going into different examples, the Snapchat streaks are one of them, like we talked about, of the different ways that some of these features are not designed for people's enjoyment as much as it is to try and grab and hold people's time. So it's tech designers that are sneaking into young people's brains. And can you tell us a little more about the common ways technology is designed to be addictive? Can you go a little deeper into that? Sure. One of the fundamental kind of principles is something called variable rewards. And so in America, slot machines, which are a gambling tool, make more money than baseball movies and theme parks combined. And the reason for that is these variable rewards. You pull the lever, you push the button, and sometimes you win and sometimes you don't, but you can't predict and this is right out of social psychology of they found in Skinner boxes that if the rat pushes the lever and it knows when it gets the food, pushes the lever a couple of times, goes about its life. But on these variable reward schedule where it can't predict when it's going to get the food, it'll just sit there pushing the button and pushing the button and pushing the button. And so much of our phones are designed like these slot machines. Every time we try to hit one of those little red icons, we're playing the slot machine. Sometimes we got a lot of likes, sometimes we didn't, sometimes that person saw it, sometimes they didn't. And there's a lot of slot machines that are built into our phones that make it very, very hard to put them down and ultimately end up having a lot of downstream negative consequences. It seems like this technology is more harmful to kids than it is to adults, that is people over 25. Is this true? Why? And is this something to do with brain development? It probably is about brain development in terms of what we're seeing. But I also would say it's more than not having alternatives, like not knowing a different type of life or not having learned the skills that older people were forced to learn at a young age. And yeah, we are seeing... The data does show like kids who get their first smartphone later are having higher mental health scores across a whole bunch of different categories. Uh, I just think a lot of the social skill, whether it's brain development or the exposure to other alternatives or possibilities, 
this, those skills are not yet there for kids. And then they're learning how to socialize through this process. It's helpful with a couple things and then a terrible teacher of so many life skills and ways of communicating and mindfulness and emotions. It's a box of self-comparison and extremism and just like the most amazing and outrageous and like it's the most of all sorts of different categories. Here's a tough one, at least for the listeners. You talk about deleting toxic apps and you mentioned TikTok, Snapchat and Instagram. Uh, you also say it's far more effective to do this in groups. Could you explain this? Yeah. And yeah, you get to decide what's toxic for you. If something isn't toxic for you, then great. It's not toxic for you. And so it's just more effective if you can grab a couple friends and say, hey, for a week, can we try this and delete this app off our phones and see how it feels? And often we're pretty borderline addicted to these apps. We might feel these cravings or withdrawal for like three days. Often that happens. And then after that, things start to feel a little better. And one thing that's really helpful for it to stick when you're doing that by yourself or with your friends is really thinking about, okay, what am I going to do in those moments instead of look at that app? So often we turn to that app in a moment of boredom, of loneliness, of anxiety. We don't even know we're doing it sometimes. We just open the app and we start scrolling or on our for you page or whatever it might be because figuring out a replacement behavior is a very important piece of building good habits this podcast isn't meant to entertain you it's meant to help you do life better by showing you how to think about and navigate important issues that aren't usually talked about to youngsters but we believe that you need to hear this because it has the potential to change your life and the lives of other young people like you. So please share this episode with someone you care about. And if you haven't already, please hit the follow button. It helps us get these meaningful insights and messages in front of more youngsters. As part of what we do with KFI Global, we go to schools and universities to deliver financial education program to teens and young adults. And they are a tough crowd. It's like they don't know what they don't know. And they don't know how important it is and how it will impact their life. How receptive are teenagers to the idea that technology, including social media, is intentionally designed to be addictive and harmful to them? How do they typically react to this revelation? So it's a combination. Some of them are, you know, disturbed. Some of them are like, oh, I knew that. And it's, there is similarity. If you don't know what you don't know, and we go through our lives that way sometimes, always, adults yeah. do. But yeah, I definitely do find that there is, you know, I think part of why I come in is schools are having a lot of trouble seeing the vast number of ways that kids are just like not even seeing their blind spots. And I'm helpful at illuminating some of them because I'm, in part, because I'm coming in in a non-judgmental way. I really am yeah. not here to tell anybody what to do. What I want for this next generation is for them to live their own lives and like actively be making choices and having fun and doing the things they really want to do, not just doing things because they're being manipulated into doing them. And it's easier said than done because the stuff is very ingrained in our lives and related to yeah. our social structures and to the way we do our homework and work sometimes. So it's really tough. But it's, I think, starting that conversation and opening the testing ground for new ideas or alternatives is a helpful place to start. And that's most of where my role is. It can't all be bad though, can it? Are there ways that students can use social media in positive ways? And can you talk a bit about this aspect? Sure. I mean, it's certainly not all bad. And to me, a lot of the good is obvious. YouTube is probably one of the best resources in the world for learning in that way. YouTube with intent, great learning tool. 
YouTube, if we're just sitting back and watching everything that it feeds us, is like just pushing us towards more and more extreme ideas of whatever we're already likely to believe. There are examples where just if you were to search for Donald Trump videos, you'd slowly get pushed towards more and more authoritarian videos and eventually like straight up extreme intense racism videos. That was what the YouTube algorithm would push us towards. And it's not just politics. If you search vegetarianism, you get pushed towards veganism, just like more and more extreme content. And so just watching the YouTube recommendations are not going to give you good information. And it's definitely not all bad to me, just like the good is obvious. We're seeing and exposed to new ideas who wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to. Same for new people. It can be a great tool to first like connect with somebody or meet somebody. Not having all your communications be on this digital screen is going to be far more fulfilling than than doing the other way. Painting your algorithms, what does that mean? So a lot of the people who are happy with their social media use have really actively trained their algorithms. So it's like, if you're seeing things, you know, the algorithm is learning from every action, everything you ever click on, what you hover over, how long you watch it, whose profiles you visit, how long you stalk your crushes and exes on social media, all that data is tracked and being used to serve you the next video. And so the people who, a lot of them who are more satisfied with their social media use, they've trained their algorithms. They're really liking and commenting on a lot of things they want to see more of. They're using the block features, the mute features, the unfollow features. They're saying to the algorithms, hey, I want more stuff like this and less stuff like this. And so that like doesn't get rid of everything that you don't want to see. It's not going to solve all your problems, but it does just train the algorithms to show you more of what feels good for you and less of what you don't want to see. Okay. I've read research that says that even the mere presence of smartphones reduces available cognitive capacity, i.e. makes you dumber. Can you talk a bit more about this? Makes you dumber, feel strong. But they do find in research that if you want to do better in school, one quick way of doing that is studying with the phone outside of the room. So people who studied or took tests with the phone outside the room did five points better on those tests than people who had their phones like even off and on the desk or off and in a pocket or bag. What strategies do you recommend to teenagers to combat the addictive nature of technology and social media? Can you share some practical tips they can easily implement in their daily lives? Sure. So one quick one that a lot of people really like to do is going into your settings and turning off all your notifications that are not a human being trying to reach you and making it so your phone can only buzz if a person is really trying to reach you is one really helpful thing to do. A lot of very big ones are around sleep. So on both sides of sleep, when we're going to bed, obviously, like, you know, if we're scrolling till three in the morning, we're not sleeping well. But also our brain thinks the blue light from the screen, like is the sun. And then we just all our rhythms get messed up. When you don't sleep well, a lot of your days kind of get that influences a lot of your day. And so just trying if you can for like a half hour, hour before bed, not just not being on a screen, if that's possible, if you want more energy throughout the day, give that a try. And then also, like, if you can get a physical alarm clock, which are like $8 on Amazon. And if you get one of those, like, just your first thoughts of the day are not immediately, like, all these self-comparison, all these little messages, just like extra stress and anxiety. People report feeling really just, like, more relaxed throughout a day if they're waking up, not first thing in the morning, checking their phone. And so those are a couple of things. And then on the website, we've got a couple of more. Okay, I'll put those links in the show notes as well. Your other presentation, social media and your kids. What can you tell our young listeners about the key takeaways from them regarding the impact of social media on their minds and learning environments? Sure. So yeah, that one is for parents. When I go into a community, I usually talk to the kids during the day, parents at night. I think it's just helpful when everybody's talking about the same things. 
some of the ways things differ for parents are I just sort of go into a lot of them have no idea what these apps are or what's happening on them. And I just give a little breakdown of the apps themselves and what's going on on them and the areas where my concerns are and where they're not. It's also, you know, I try to help the parents lead by example. A lot of kids are learning this stuff from their parents. And also young people don't know the difference between like when, especially like a five-year-old, is seeing their parents buried in their device, that's no different to the kid of them working, them being in a game. It's just, oh, my parent is in their phone all the time and loves their phone more than they love me. It's like basically the thought that comes in. And so I try to help parents like figure out how to talk about this stuff with their kids a little bit differently, how to narrate a little bit of their youth, just being open and honest about those challenges. Let's not get our kids in trouble for this. Let's be open spaces where they can always come and say, hey, I'm seeing this online and I don't know what the heck that's about and not have the answer be punishment, but conversation. Can you tell us about the movie, The Social Dilemma? Why do you recommend young people watch this? The Social Dilemma, I think, is does a really good job of showing some of the same things I talk about of here's how technology is designed to be addictive and distracting. So like, it's good for that. It's also like, it's pretty heady and pretty complicated. I don't know how many young people are that interested in so much of it. Some are, some aren't. Like and Childhood 2.0 are more nuanced about the things teenagers are going through. But so when I'm not doing this work, I'm a poet and filmmaker. And I made a poetry film about this topic. And that went pretty viral, funny enough. And that's called This Panda is Dancing. And yeah, that's my first four minutes, not a full film, but a short film. Yeah, I was actually, that was my next question. You know, you recently ventured into poetry and art. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. You know, I've been doing that for around 10 years and I write poems and I turn them into films. And ultimately, it's just like a way of getting messages out to the world that feel important to me. And I turned, I created a, I had a live show that I turned into a special that I just released on my website, wordsthatmove.com. And so I'm very proud of that. And it also it makes my relationship with social media interesting because social media has also been a vehicle where way more people have seen my art that matters to me very much than would have without social media. This is like 10 years ago when I was posting them, they were getting millions of views. The algorithms have changed such that it doesn't work that way anymore. But still, I'm very grateful that like there had been a medium that allowed something important to me to get out to the world. And I am, you know, I don't post very often now, but I still do try to use these things to put messages out and hope that it'll be seen by people it needs to be seen by. We'll definitely put the links to those videos in the show notes as well. Can you share a success stories or examples of school or households that have effectively implemented your recommendations and seen positive changes in students' behavior and focus? Sure. So with schools, the main, and you know, kids probably aren't going to want to hear this one, but I am a big proponent of that. We have an incredible opportunity for the seven, eight hour period during the day where kids can learn, focus, patience, and how to be without their devices. There's not that many spaces in our lives that are not dominated by these things. So to have an educational environment, just like a developmental time and school happens to be one that kids spend a lot of time in that are not dominated by this stuff, I think is really helpful. And so there's something called a way for the day that I recommend, which is a resource that helps schools implement a way for the day phone policies where phones are not like, you know, we put our phones away for the day and we get them at the end of the day. Maybe there's like, a, you know, there are exceptions if you need it for X, Y, or Z, like don't need to paint everything with such a broad brush, but that being the norm. And I don't have like, oh, this school did it so well, but I've yet to work with a school who has done that and regretted it like that. And often the kids are 
you know, resistant at first, but then after a while do kind of recognize, all right, like socially, this is, you know, at the lunchroom, everybody is not just buried in their phones. Like we had to learn how to talk to each other. And now we actually talk and people like often kids realize they don't want to be the only one without their device. But if everybody's doing it together, there is something different that happens. And I think we have a real opportunity for schools to, to present that. And a similar sort of thing for parents would be for both parents and kids at dinner tables to be like putting phones, like having device-free dinner tables and actually eating together. Similarly, a lot of parents will ask me like, how do I get my kids are on their phones until the wee hours in the morning, they're taking it into the bedroom at night. And for parents saying, hey, like for you too, have your bedrooms be phone-free zones. Like have that be the policy in your house, put a charging station in another room, everybody put your devices there. A lot of parents who do that and model that from young ages for themselves don't have the problems as much with kids as they get older. So I think those are two examples of some policies that seem to just be working really well for just about everybody who tries them. Sure. Max, do you have a message for these kids before we let you go? A message for these kids. I would say one thing that just might be interesting to think about is if you, two things. One is if you look back on times in your life that you felt the most like alive and free and connected to the people that you care about, maybe you're like laughing hysterically with friends or family members, like what were you doing? Where were you? What was going on there? And what I ask people to reflect on that, you know, occasionally people are like, I was on this video game, but most of the time people are not thinking of screen time or social media in that. And so it's just interesting that the things that bring us most alive are not this social media and technology thing, but it's where we spend so much of our time. And so I'd want to invite you to think about like, how could you create more of those experiences in your life? How do you design more of that? It's never been harder to like actually design our own fun because everybody's pulled into this stuff all the time. If your friends are all doing this, it's no fun to be like, like, it's very hard to say, hey, can you put that down? Can we like try something different that might not even be that fun? But like, can we try? It's hard. It's hard to do that. That's one thing. And the other is, it's never been easier to run away from the hard things. But if you think about anything in your life that you're really proud of, chances are that the way you got there is you overcame something hard. Like that's what tends to make us proud of ourselves and feel meaningful. And so just like, while it might be really tempting to like run away from any uncomfortable feelings or moments by just going into our phone, just like thinking, trying to make that choice more actively. Sometimes you're going to want to do that. That's okay. Like you want to zone out, you've got the greatest zone out device of all time. But are we running from every little thing? And can we actually like learn how to work at the hard things and be with the discomfort of that and get to the other side? Because that's where a lot of meaning and fulfillment comes from. So I'd say like, what has really made you feel alive in life and can you do more of it? And what have you felt proud of? And what did you overcome to like get there? And can we endure some of the challenge and discomfort that, you know, without numbing out by checking our devices all the time? That is such a fantastic message. Max, thank you for doing this and thank you for the work that you do in the world. And we're so happy that you could make the time to be on this podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. I want to help you use what you learned here. And the best way to do that is to get a podcast buddy. That's someone who also listens to this podcast. Then talk to your podcast buddy about the one takeaway from this episode that resonated with you the most. That's it. That's all you have to do. Remember that much of what is talked about in this podcast is stuff that's not typically talked about to young people. And it should be.
It's stuff that you need to know so that you can lead a life that's, you guessed it, smarter, richer, and braver. This is your host, Marilyn Pinto, signing off. Until next time. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to broach in our upcoming episodes, please email us at smarterricherbraver at gmail.com. And if you'd like to sign up for one of our award-winning programs, go to kfi.global and check out our upcoming schedule.